Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Donald Trump saying that he's open to talks with North Korea after Kim Jong-un's regime tells South Korean envoys that he is willing to consider giving up his nuclear weapons, a potential breakthrough after months of threats from both leaders. Here to help us understand the situation is Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg View editor and expert with all things strategic and geopolitical and military. Toby, thanks for being here with our with uh, in our 1130 studio. So what do you make of this uh, this report? I mean, is this real progress or is it, I mean, and who is this progress between? He's drinking between? a beer. Mm-hmm. He's got his feet up on the desk. It's over. Yeah, it is not over. And Pim, you actually made a very important distinction right there, which is that the North has told South Korea that it is open to these things, or so the South Koreans tell us. When the North Koreans tell us they're open to these things, then maybe we'll start listening a little bit more openly. Uh, but we're playing a game of telephone right here, and we don't know what message is coming from the other side. We know what message is coming from President Trump, which seems to be that he wants to make sure that he gets in the middle of this and, and gets to uh, get some credit for everything being resolved. Or that's what it seems anyway for him coming out and saying, uh, you know, well, you know, we're, we're open to things. Things seem to be evolving. I think that you're going to get a lot of people claiming credit from both sides, at least until this whole thing falls apart. I think that the Trump side will uh, will claim that their tougher sanctions, that their hard approach has brought the uh, the North Koreans to the table. And I think that uh, a lot of people on uh, uh, this side of the ocean who are opposed to the Trump side will say that uh, this shows that the way to talk to deal with the North Koreans is through talks, not through threats. All right. So putting this together, though, this seems like a very positive move. I mean, whatever you can speculate about the future, it's better that we're having this kind of conversation than other kinds of... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As uh, as Churchill is said to have said, it is better to jaw jaw than to war war. I, I think there is always um, a place for diplomacy and diplomacy is the next step in this. Um, but we've been here before. We've seen this movie. Uh, we saw it under President Clinton when the U.S. was actually willing to give similar security guarantees um, in writing to the North Koreans. Um, we've you know, this is sort of the game that the North has played. Um back and forth. And a lot of times it's just seemed that they are stalling to advance their nuclear program. Toby, one thing that I'm confused by is who's driving the bus with diplomacy efforts? Is it South Korea now? Uh, Where is China in this, especially as, uh, you know, the tariff talk and, and potential trade wars heat up between the U.S. and China? The South Koreans may be driving the bus, but the Chinese own it. Um, There is no question that nothing is going to get done um, without the Chinese on board. They uh, are responsible for 90% of North Korea's trade. Um, They insist that they have cut off about a third of that, Um, although there's some speculation. They have phrased that in a monetary value, so there's some speculation that they're using uh, exchange rates to sort of monkey this and make it seem like they're 
they're getting less fewer exports than they actually are. Um, the the question is whether you can have bilateral talks between the U.S. and the North or trilateral talks uh, between the U.S. and the North and the South. It doesn't matter unless the Chinese are at the table. Nothing real is going to happen. And look, what. Kim is supposedly talking about, according to the South Koreans, is some sort of security guarantee. And in the end, their security will be guaranteed by China. Toby, to just move you slightly off what's going on in the Korea Peninsula, uh, North Korea has been linked to supplying Syria with the uh, uh, material and the uh, services of producing chemical weapons. This is according to United Nations Security Council diplomat. Uh, is that at all relevant to the stance that the United States has taken against North Korea? Um, not immediately, I would say. We don't actually know when these chemical weapons may have come from, from North Korea. Um, it's pretty clear that in eastern Ghouta, uh, the Assad administration has used chemical weapons against civilians, uh, chlorine gas being uh, what we suspect or what the traces have shown. Um, yes, we have accused the North Koreans of being responsible for chlorine and you know other nerve agents that have ended up in Syria we know that they export them um I don't think it bears an immediate connection between the two simply because we don't know how long it's been there okay the, the reason I bring this up is because mm -hmm. while we're discussing the potential for North Korea to change its stance on its nuclear weapons program this is something that is actually happening and uh is a horrible situation in in Syria what makes anybody think that if you can't solve that, that you're going to solve this hypothetical having to do with nuclear weapons? Um, <laughs> that's a tough question. I, as I said, I don't think I would I would tie them too too closely together. Syria is a situation of its own that looks hopeless at the moment. There may be some sort of international breakthrough, um, but in that, the Russians are just as important as the Chinese are to North Korea. Well, so, but, but one thing that it does uh, raise the issue about is North Korea as a regime and how it is viewed around the world. And one of the sort of preconditions that South Korea said that North Korea said that it wanted, uh, talking about the game of telephone, was for security guarantees that the North Korean regime would not be attacked or uh, that it would remain uh, present. How amenable might the U.S. be to that precondition? Uh, to keeping two Koreas, I think the U.S. is fine with that. Um, I think the U.S. wants to isolate the threat of the ICBMs, the, the threat of North Korean nukes, and we'd be able to go a long way toward that. Another thing that they would like is the U.S. forces removed from South Korea, from the DMZ. I would put that on the table if I were the U.S. What I would not put on the table um, is the, the interactions and exercises exercises between the U.S. and South Korea, which are far more important to regional security, particularly against uh, a rising China. Um, the sea is a very hard place. We lost two destroyers last year through accidents. That kind of stuff happens. You need to have exercises between our Navy and the North Korean Navy and the Japanese Navy and anyone else in, in the Pacific who wants to do that. And that's maybe more about China than it is about North Korea, although it's important for, you know, blockading North Korea if we want to get to that point. That should be non-negotiable for the U.S. Well, a lot going on. We really appreciate you taking the time. Toby Harshaw, uh, I'm sure you'll go, be going off and, and writing about why, you know, before you pop the champagne and, and are convinced that there is no nuclear threat, threat anymore. Hey, in our lifetime.
you think that there will be? I think so. I think the North, that North Korea is, is you know, um, it has too many internal con- contradictions. It's not going to last, but it's a long-term project. Well, a note of optimism on this Tuesday. Toby Harsha, editor at Bloomberg View in New York, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Ray Dalio, co-founder of Bridgewater, said in a LinkedIn post yesterday that the uh, tariff talk was just that, mostly talk, and is unlikely to come to reality. Here to discuss what the likelihood is and and sort of what we're seeing with respect to this discussions and what it indicates uh, for the broader economy is Brendan Brown, chief economist and head of economic research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities, joining us from our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Brendan, can can you just give us a sense how likely, given the back and forth, given Gary Cohn, given Paul Ryan, given what we're seeing today, how likely is it that the uh, tariffs that President Trump have been talking about will come to pass? It seems quite likely they will come to pass. But one has to also say that it affects a very small part of the overall trade picture. And the much bigger question as regards U.S. trade and unfair competition is to do with currency manipulation. And I think that's why you're seeing this background dollar weakness, that there is a suspicion there in the markets that all this talk about trade ultimately is going to percolate through to more dollar depreciation. Explain that a little bit more when you talk about currency manipulation. What do you think the goal is? Well, the currency manipulation is being led at the moment by Japan and Europe. Japan keeping the long-term interest rate pegged at zero, the ECB keeping interest rates at negative levels. Those two actions keep their currencies cheap against the dollar. There's no intimation as yet that the US administration is actually asking Japan or Europe to abandon those policies. But the suspicion is that the new Fed chair, Powell, Um, who apparently gets on well or was chosen because he gets on well with the Treasury Secretary and the Treasury Secretary wants dollar depreciation or a cheap dollar, that this is all going to feed back to somewhat easier than otherwise monetary policy and, and dollar depreciation. And that's being reflected, I think, in markets broadly. So, Brendan, uh, do you think that it's possible that we're going to see a currency war? I mean, forget, uh, forget a trade war. Are we going to see some kind of race to the bottom here? Well, the history of the last few years since the crash of 2008 has been perpetual currency war. It started off with U.S. currency uh, warfare and, and, and then, of course, Japan and Europe and China have retaliated in various ways. But I do think that the trade um, conflict um, is going to manifest, manifest itself in continued and probably intensified uh, currency warfare. Well, if that's the case, then what do you believe investors ought to do to protect themselves or to profit from it? Well, gold, of course, rises in this environment because if if everyone's racing to the bottom, as you say, keeping in, interest rates artificially low with trying to keep their currencies cheap, the beneficiary of that is, is clearly gold. Um, so that's one aspect. Uh, the The equity markets clearly like a general monetary um, ease story as part of this um, trade background. Um, but the downside of that is that the, 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 you can get uh, mini crashes or worse, such as one had in, in early February. 
So you foresee more of those kinds of volatile days? Well, my focus is, is really on the credit markets. The, the biggest and, and the most worrying aspect of this prolonged asset inflation due to the monetary stance is for credit markets. And um, the Italian elections um, at the weekend really highlight that risk. But you've got a 2.87% tenure right now in the U.S. Treasury. Where do you see that going if we get that kind of volatility that you describe? Well, the 10-year is going to continue to reflect um, the uh, some background risk aversion so that we, we know that there's um, potential increased volatility setbacks. So how, however much the bond bears talk about interest rates rising and inflation rising, there is a, long, a bid in the long run markets for safety. So I, I don't see these long yields um, rising a long way. Uh, my focus is much more on the credit spreads and what's going to happen to those. Uh, so speaking about that, we just were talking about the CVS deal that's coming uh, that could price as soon as today, potentially $45 billion of bonds. Do you think that uh, yields on investment grade uh, corporate debt are, are going to go materially higher from here? Between now and the end of the year, yes. Um, the, the, the leverage in this cycle um, is very much in the corporate debt markets and in the emerging market debt markets and expanding corporate debts in, 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 in those countries. So, so that's where the shakeout is going to be. And given the increased volatility, um, we know that in principle, corporate debt and risky debt is priced off um, volatility and uh, the price of uh, priced off options. And, and those uh, are all affected by the increased volatility. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Brendan Brown is the chief economist and the head of economic research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities, uh, giving us his thoughts on the current economic outlook and uh, the tightrope that uh, Federal Reserve uh, Chairman Jay Powell uh, has to walk. Yesterday, news came out that Amazon.com is working with banks, including J.P. Morgan, to provide checking-like accounts to its customers. And here to sort of put this into context, explain what this might mean, and uh, look forward to the future of these types of alliances is Ram Aluwalia, Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of PeerIQ, uh, based in New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Ram. Uh, what was your impression when you saw this news that Amazon.com was teaming up with Big Wall? Wall Street banks to act more bank-like? Well, it's a significant announcement. The financial services sector just had its Amazon moment. And if you look at it from Amazon's point of view, the financing and payments of retail transactions is a logical next step um, for their business, as I cite, and look for additional profit pools. There's also a strong financial motivation for, for Amazon. Today, Amazon spends about $250 million in interchange fees, about 2% per transaction, to Visa, MasterCard, and issuing banks. With an Amazon checking account, Amazon can avoid all those fees. And if Amazon converts 25% of their customers to this deposit account, that can drop $50 million to their bottom line, which has a significant market cap impact. From a bank perspective, it's, it's very significant news. Uh, the banks today 
um, are struggling to differentiate. Bank branches are consolidating as you have customers prefer an online, mobile, uh, personal uh, experience. And if you look at the customer segment that Amazon is targeting, the younger generation, unbanked populations, these are segments that are notoriously low in terms of fee revenue and profitability for banks. So Amazon's targeted inappropriate segment where it'll be difficult for banks to compete. That said, Amazon needs to partner with banks because there's no clear regulatory framework for Amazon as a commerce company to act and compete as a national bank. And so that's why the reporting has discussed the idea of a partnership potentially with J.P. Morgan. Ram, does this have any implications for third-party merchants that sell through Amazon and the fees that are typically charged by, whether it's Visa, MasterCard, American Express, those fees that card uh, companies uh, you know, take from the merchants? Yeah, it, it can be an opportunity for Amazon to... Uh, number one, avoid interchange economics to some of the companies you, you cite in the network charges there. Uh, for the merchants on their platform, you know, today Amazon provides financing to merchants that sell online. Uh, and potentially Amazon, you know, longer term could, could look to defray the, the economic transaction costs that, that merchants pay. But that's not uh, contemplated in this announcement. So uh, in order to get clients to move to an Amazon.com sponsored checking account with the banks, are they going to offer some enticement, do you think, to uh, customers? And what would be the financials between the bank and Amazon.com, which really loves having access to all the data uh, that its clients uh, provide? Exactly. No, I would imagine that you'd see some type of rewards value proposition. Amazon recently announced uh, a new credit card uh, in partnership with a bank that offers discounts when you purchase at Whole Foods or online or at restaurants. With the 2% savings on the avoidance of interchange fees, Amazon can redirect a portion of that uh, to defray the cost of purchasing online or some other type um, of bonus. Uh, in terms of the relationship between Amazon and the bank, uh, usually these are co-brand relationships, and co-brand relationships have been around for for decades now, right? For example, Chase has a United Knowledge Plus card where uh, United provides the marketing, Chase provides the servicing, the legal framework, uh, the the balance sheet capacity, and the risk management. So I think a similar type of model will take place here, where Amazon will provide the customer access access to the data for underwriting, uh, and then uh, a bank on the back end will, will service those customers. So at a certain point, I guess that this raises the big $100 million question here, $100 billion question potentially, which yeah. is, uh, is Amazon.com dipping its toe into this with the idea of always partnering with Wall Street or becoming a direct rival to Wall Street? I would say Amazon is, is learning from this you know, experience. Number one is they don't have the regulatory framework to take on the banks head-to-head today. There's been discussion of a fintech charter that could be awarded by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency that would give Amazon and other fintech companies the opportunity to compete on a national basis with the banks. Today, that regulatory swim lane doesn't exist. So Amazon really does have to partner with a bank. Um, however, you know, there are you know, precedents out there. If you look internationally in the China market, there are large uh, technology companies such as Ant Financial and Tencent, which have banking charters. And that certainly has inspired Amazon and Amazon's competitors to go after this opportunity. So I think Amazon will learn 
from their uh, experience as they develop these new products, both on how do you acquire the customers, how do you underwrite the customers, which data is relevant. Uh, and then as that regulatory framework evolves, uh, I think you would see Amazon uh, enter more deeply into lending, consumer banking more generally, and the other opportunities around asset management and insurance. Well, I wanted to just just quickly offer you the chance with Peer IQ, which is your company. Is it possible that a company like Amazon would partner with you in order to provide that conduit to the businesses that are looking for those alternative forms of credit? Hundred percent. So Peer IQ provides the data and risk management analytics for owners and providers of financing for consumer credit risk. So we're able to help uh, Amazon and, and banks to understand the health of the U.S. consumer and understand where we are in the business cycle, make better risk and lending decisions. I want to thank you very much for being with us, uh, Ram Alawalia. He is the chief executive and the co-founder of Peer IQ, giving us uh, his thoughts on what's going on with Amazon and the possibility that maybe you'll have a checking account and it'll be from Amazon, maybe with a 2% uh, fee reduction. For Amazon, this is such a fascinating issue because every other area that Amazon has gotten into, uh, there's the Amazon effect where shares in that industry just plummet. And you're not necessarily seeing that in the uh, in the banking sector. Well, and because so, they've got the partners. That's right. right. The partnership with J.P. Morgan Chase. Because they've got the partnership and they don't have the charter. Yeah, indeed. And uh, it may be too expensive and too onerous to get it yourself. So just rent it from J.P. Morgan Chase. Is a rally in stocks a time to sell? Well, let's find out from David Katz. He is the chief investment officer for Matrix Asset Advisors. He's got more than $790 million of assets under management, and he joins us now. David, thanks very much for being uh, with us. Maybe just start off by doing the whole thing, you know, buy the dip, sell the rally. Is there any strategy that is worth following that is along those lines? Well, we think that is going to be the, the watchword for 2018. Uh, we think that ultimately uh, the market probably is up in the high single digits, low double digits area, and the time to get more optimistic about stock is after sell-offs like we've had over the last few weeks, uh, and the time to be less optimistic and, and taking profits is after you've had a significant run to the upside. It's important to point out that when the stock market is selling off, there's a lot of doom and gloom, so you've got to be prepared to buy into that uncertainty. Uh, and the flip side is after the market has had a great run like it did in January, everything looks wonderful. Don't get caught up in that enthusiasm. How often do you end up trading? Well, basically, we run portfolios, so we're looking at individual stocks, and on that basis, uh, you know, we're happy to take profits if a stock has run up a lot, and by the same token, uh, we're happy to put money to work into a decline if we've got cash on the sidelines. So here, here's the reason why I'm asking. Uh, Morningstar put out a survey this week saying that last year, 43% of active managers beat their benchmarks, uh, and that was up from 26% in 2016, uh, but still less than half. And I'm wondering, you know, for an active manager, how do you add that alpha? How frequently does it take trading, um, especially at a time when there's a lot of volatility of volatility? In other words, it's hard to predict uh, when things are going to spike or, 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 uh, or rally. 
Great question. So we're long-term value investors. We have a large-cap value product and a dividend product. We're pretty low turnover, anywhere from the area of 15 to 20%. So we're not adding our alpha by trading the market. We're hopefully adding our alpha uh, by buying good long-term investments at attractive prices. When we, we talk on your show, uh, on the margin, we're talking about investors that have had cash on the sidelines that they're talking about putting to work. We'd buy into that dip. And by the same token, we work with a lot of individuals investors, and they tend to get a lot more enthusiastic about throwing money into the market after a rally. So our best advice is don't do that. But from our perspective, long-term investing, buy businesses you like at attractive prices, uh, and over time you'll do well. The last few years have been pretty tough for value investors. Uh, generally, after periods like that, value comes back with a vengeance. So while we've got a good long-term record, uh, we definitely have struggled in the last few years. Uh, we think that sets the stage for value to do a whole heck of a lot better going forward. Companies that you like. Tell us about Chubb, the insurance giant. So Chubb is a, a great long-term business. Um, they've done very well in terms of earnings. Uh, the thing that makes us most enthusiastic about the company is on the last conference call, the CEO, who we think is probably the best CEO in the insurance industry, said he's- Evan Greenberg? Yes. Okay. Uh, that, that he's seeing the firmest pricing environment uh, in the insurance area that he's seen in a number of years. That generally is a precursor for very good earnings performance and very good stock price performance. So we think you're getting some very good underlying trends at an attractive price. All right. So that's Chubb. Take us through a couple of other names that you're interested in. I want to focus you right now on Gilead Sciences. They were very, they're very big in uh, hepatitis and, uh, and AIDS therapies. So Gilead is a great biotechnology company. Uh, it sells at a pretty reasonable PE under 12 times earnings. They dominate uh, the hepatitis field. They dominate the HIV field. They've made some very good investments in cancer research and products. So we think you're getting a great long-term business at a very attractive price, and you're almost getting a 3% dividend yield while we're waiting. Uh, right now, the stock's at about 79. We think easily it can be 90 to 110 over the next one to two years, and you've got fairly limited downside risk along the way. Is it relevant that they have, what, a little bit more than $11.5 billion in cash on the, uh, I beg your pardon, more than that, $25 billion in cash? Uh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that attracts us to it is they've got this great cash flow generation and a great balance sheet. And that great balance sheet allows them to do a few things. It allows them to pay a very healthy dividend, and they've been raising that dividend at a very rapid clip. And it also allows them to make some smart acquisitions that ultimately fill their pipeline and, and help earn. If you look at Gilead over the last five or six years, they've been great acquirers of business. Their whole hepatitis C franchise was made on an acquisition uh, that worked out to be great. We think their recent acquisition in cancer research is going to work very well. So seasoned managers deploy the cash very nicely, and you're getting that real cheap. David, Wells Fargo. This was one of your picks, which I find really interesting. Shares down uh, nearly 6% so far this year, continuing to fall as the scandal just keeps on going with respect to how the company has been managed. What gives you conviction that this bank is uh, oversold and offers opportunity? 
Well, we think Wells has a great footprint. Uh, the problems that they've had in the last year are astounding. We, we absolutely can't believe that management allowed it to go on. We can't believe that the board didn't take harsher actions. However, we think a lot of that is in the rearview mirror. You do have an overhang from the Fed this year in terms of slowing their growth, but it really is only slowing their earnings growth by about uh, 10 or 15 cents. It's one of the cheaper financial institutions out there. It pays one of the higher dividend yields. And longer term, it's got a great footprint. People will use Wells Fargo as a bank. Uh, if you look at some corporate scandals over the years, companies uh, that managed well can get over them. Toyota had their car problems a year ago, a few years ago. Again, it's considered one of the top automobile companies in the world. Johnson & Johnson had some problems a few years ago, again, held in very high regard. Three years ago, Wells Fargo was thought to be the best financial institution in the country. Obviously, they, they've lost that. But we do think two years from now, they're going to regain some of um, their standing. And by the time people realize that, the stock will be about 30 to 40% higher. So the time to buy is during this period of uncertainty while the company is still making a great deal of money. David, just quickly, Johnson Controls, how long are you willing to wait before you throw in the towel on a stock? Well, we've owned it for a few years. It's done well, and then in the last 18 months, it's been miserable. Our strong sense is that the new CEO is turning the business around, and we think that you're going to see progress within the next three to nine months. Uh, so, you know, we've given another 12 months, but we, we absolutely feel you're going to see progress in the upcoming year, and the stock's at a great price in the meantime. David Katz, thank you so much for joining us. David Katz, Chief Investment Officer of Matrix Asset Advisors, which is based in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.